It's so good seeing you this morning, and thank you so much for tuning in tonight. You know, if you watch television, even for a little bit, you notice that insurance companies are taking over the advertising landscape, them and beer companies, of course. And one particular insurance company has long used the slogan, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now, of course, their sentiment is that they will do the things that a good neighbor does, and therefore you can trust them with your insurance needs. Of course, there is a direct connection between their neighborliness and your pocketbook. They're not going to be neighborly for free. It's going to cost you something. And the same is true in our daily lives. Being a good neighbor will cost you something. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 25, here's what we read. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. All of us find ourselves in this story. All of us at one time or another in our lives have found ourselves chewed up and spit out by life, maybe lying on the side of the road in need of assistance. We've also found ourselves in the position of the priest or the Levite walking by on the other side of the road because we just didn't have time to get involved. We we didn't want the headache or, or the effort to to reach out and we feel bad about that but we've done it nonetheless and then all of us have found ourselves probably in the position of the Samaritan doing exactly what we're supposed to do and when we when we are the Samaritan we feel as close to God as possible we feel very proud of serving God it's when we love our enemies and show compassion and bear the burden of one who desperately needs us when we are the good Samaritan we feel really good about our service to God. You know, I feel compelled to share this message tonight. This is not what I had planned for this evening, but with all the events going on in our world, I thought it might be appropriate to do so. This is a message I actually shared, at least a version of it, about probably five years ago. It is a lesson that I first heard from Dr. Bruce McClarty at the Harding University Lectureships, and after he got done speaking, I emailed him and I said, what a great lesson. I would love to adapt that and preach it sometime. He said, absolutely, go ahead. He sent me his notes. He sent me his PowerPoint. And so this is an adaptation of that sermon and a sermon I did about five years ago that I think uh, 
perhaps is, is needed. I hope anyway that it does something. I realize that you know, my speaking uh, about the Good Samaritan and how it relates to our world probably doesn't fix everything. It may not fix anything, but hopefully we'll take the words to heart and, and respond appropriately. You know, I've preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan many times. And I've wrestled with this parable. I have done my best on previous occasions to dissect this parable and to talk about how we are as Christians to reach out in love, that we are to help those in need, that we are to take advantage of opportunities to help others when they present themselves, love the unlovable, show compassion, all those kind of things. But, but I'm preaching on this parable again tonight in a different way because I believe that there's more to this parable than just what we have often focused on. I think it's deeper than just taking advantage of an opportunity and reaching out to the unlovable. It all starts with a question. And the question is, who is my neighbor? This question was asked by a lawyer. He was an expert in the law, not civil law, but Jewish law. And he is feigning respect for Jesus when he asks, who is my neighbor? Now understand, this is a boundary question. The lawyer wanted Jesus to give him a precise definition as to who his neighbor was, because after all, he didn't want to show love and concern to someone who didn't deserve it. He didn't want to be careless with his love, and he certainly didn't want to be showing his neighborliness to enemies. This lawyer, like the scribes and the Pharisees, had no problem loving a fellow Jew. They had no problem being a neighbor to their fellow Jew. A fellow Jew would certainly be one considered uh, an opportunity to show love and kindness and mercy and all those things, but not a low-life, half-breed Samaritan. In no way, shape, or form were they worthy of neighborliness from a Jew. Jesus knows the heart of this expert in the law, which is why he answers his question with a parable. You see, the lawyer's question was the wrong question because you cannot define who your neighbor is. You can only be a neighbor, which is why Jesus responds to the wrong question with a parable in which a lowly Samaritan is the hero. You probably remember Dr. Kent Brantley. Dr. Brantley, several years ago, was a doctor serving overseas and contracted the Ebola virus. He was doing a mission uh, trip in, uh, in, in a part of Africa when he, when he was stricken with the virus, and for weeks he suffered with it. He was nearing the point of death because the vast majority of people who contract Ebola do eventually die. So the decision was made to bring Dr. Brantley to the United States where he could get better health care. And many people in our society went nuts. Brantley was brought to Emory University. Even Christian friends of mine were saying things like, he, he shouldn't be over here, he shouldn't be bringing this virus into our country. If you listen to the news, everybody was going to be stricken with Ebola within a few weeks. I even heard Christian friends of mine saying things like, that was his decision. He should stay over there. Even if he dies, I mean, that, he, that's what he deserves because he went over there knowing that he could get Ebola. It was, a, it was a sad state of affairs as you watch the reaction of people who wanted to get the best health care for Dr. Kent Brantley. Brantley explains that he was very precise in following the protocol so that he wouldn't contract Ebola. He said he could not have been more careful. 
He figures that he contracted the virus in another area in which he was helping two women who were giving birth. He stayed with them through the night trying to save them, but within 24 to 48 hours, he became so weak that he had to be diapered by the nurses. Three days in a row, he received a unit of blood. That first unit of blood came from the blood bank. The second unit of blood came from one of his co-workers, but that third unit of blood came from a 14-year-old boy who had had the Ebola virus and gotten over it and was insistent that Dr. Brantley take his blood. By the way, that 14-year-old boy was a Muslim, a good Muslim who saw his neighbor in need and wanted nothing more than to meet that need. We categorize people. You do it. I do it. We paint them with a broad brush. For instance, some may only know one person who is a member of the Church of Christ and a hypocrite, and therefore all members of the church are hypocrites. We may have worked with a Hispanic man who was lazy, and so we paint with a broad brush that all Hispanic people are lazy. All Asian people are bad drivers. All black people are good at sports. All white people can't dance. All poor people are lazy. We categorize. We generalize. We all have a file on people, and that file contains everything we think we know about a particular people. And the Jews certainly had a file on Samaritans. And that file contained a generalized, broad brush picture. There was nothing good about a Samaritan. But it wasn't that there were no good Samaritans. Jesus was giving the Jews a new file and he was showing them that their records were incomplete. That they needed to stop categorizing people and painting with such a broad brush. In fact, Jesus does this on more than one occasion. We find it over and over again in scripture. You think about Jesus' mother Mary. People would have had a file on people like her. That file would have read promiscuous or fornicator. I mean, here's a young lady who becomes pregnant out of wedlock. What else were people supposed to think? And because she is promiscuous and a fornicator, then obviously she has nothing to contribute to society. She cannot be good. But listen to her response to the angel Gabriel. She says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Many would have been wrong about Mary, you see. There was no foul on her that would read anything other than she must have been a fornicator. But there was more to her than that. There was more than meets the eye. There was more information in her file. What about Levi? A hated tax collector. Surely there was nothing good in Levi's file. Yet Jesus approaches him and very simply says, follow me. And Luke 5, 28 reads, and he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. There were many people in Jesus's day and age that had a folder that read bad tax collector, corrupt tax collector, but there was no file for good tax collector. Certainly not a file for faithful tax collector. In Luke chapter 7, we find a good Roman centurion. He comes to Jesus seeking healing for his servant. This ruthless and powerful man humbles himself before Jesus saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
And Jesus marvels at the faith of this centurion. He looks at the crowd and he says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And can you imagine the people saying to themselves, what did he just say? Surely he must be joking. Because they didn't have a file for good centurion. They had a file that read mean, hateful, malicious centurion, but not one that said good centurion. How about Zacchaeus? The lowly and hated tax collector, the wee little man who climbs up in a sycamore tree just to get a glimpse of this man they call Jesus. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus, hurry, come down for today. I must go to your house. And when the religious people saw this, they began grumbling, saying he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They had a file on people like Zacchaeus. They had a file on Zacchaeus particularly. He was a sinner. He was corrupt. Luke gives us some details about Zacchaeus that we're tempted to kind of glimpse over. He tells us that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, that he was rich. Every time the people saw Zacchaeus dressed in his lavish clothing with his abundant wealth, they saw the reason for their poverty. Zacchaeus was a licensed thief working for the government, but Jesus saw a touchable heart and was willing to take a chance. He changed him from the inside out, and in the process, our Lord gives the people a new file on Zacchaeus. Or what about the ten lepers who come to Jesus seeking healing? Ten men suffering from swelling lumps all over their bodies, having lost feeling in some areas, skin covered with oozing ulcers, hands and feet eaten away, the nose starting to deteriorate, not to mention the social ramifications of such a disease having to live in isolation, banished from the community, looked upon as a monster, Jesus heals them. And one of them comes back. Upon receiving new life, nine of the lepers go on about their way, but one, a Samaritan, returns to give his thanks to Jesus. Again, there was a foul for lepers. There was certainly a file for Samaritans, so this leper was doubly cursed, being a Samaritan leper. Jesus says, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. What about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Remember her nationality? Yeah, she was a Samaritan. She was a woman. She was a sinner. In other words, she was on the bottom rung of the social ladder. And she goes to a well at noon to draw water. And Jewish history tells us that there was a well actually closer to her village that she bypassed and walked a longer distance to get to this other well. And you think, why would she do that? Well, maybe so she didn't have to be around as many people and endure the judgmental eyes and the condemning whispers. Jesus approaches her. And keep in mind that Jewish men were not in the habit of asking women, especially a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Drinking after a Samaritan would render one unclean. Evidently, Jesus didn't read her file. He sees a woman who needs fulfillment in life, and so he offers her living water. You know, society had a big fat file of bad things concerning this Samaritan woman, but Jesus saw a beautiful heart in need of cleansing. We could go on, but I think you get the point. Jesus was in the business of handing out new files, getting people to see past their prejudice and into the heart of an individual. And today we need this as much as ever because the very essence of hatred and prejudice and bigotry and, and racism stems from an individual or a group of individuals having a file absent of anything good in it. 
when all I have is a file filled with all the bad things that I hear or see concerning a particular group, then I will see only with eyes of hatred. When I refuse to consider the good of that particular group of people, I become jaded and bigoted and malicious. When I don't have a good file and only the bad, then I become unbalanced in my way of thinking and acting toward a particular group. I paint groups with a broad brush and make general assumptions. And let me tell you, folks, when you begin any assessment of a certain group of people with the words, they always or those people never, then you have sinned because always and never are never true. Across the board, they're never true. They are always wrong. When you operate in always and never, you have an incomplete file. I've got some files with me this evening. I'd like to share them with you. And maybe you need to pick up one of these files. The first one is this. It's a file that reads, Good Men. You know, there are some ladies that need this file. Because they have sworn off all men. Maybe they've been abused physically or verbally or emotionally. Maybe they've had a man that didn't treat them right. Maybe they've had a couple of bad experiences. They assume that Mr. Right just isn't out there and that all men are just evil, liars, cheaters. They're painting with a broad brush. And they need a new file. And then, of course, there's this file. Good women. There are some men who need this file because they have assumed that all women are gold diggers and just out for their money. They have written off an entire gender believing that there is no such thing as a good woman. They need to add some information to their file and quit painting with a broad brush. Then you have this file. This one should get some people excited. Good Democrats. You know, unfortunately, I think that there are some Christians that if they saw a Democrat beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, they would walk on by. They believe that there is no good in someone who votes Democrat, and therefore they just completely write them off and have nothing to do with them. We seem to care more about a person's voting record or political orientation than we do about their soul. But here's the deal. Not everyone agrees with you. And we've got to be able to see a soul looking past our differences and trying in any way possible to promote the gospel, not division. And it goes the other way. Good Republicans. You say, well, of course, all Republicans are good, right? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be. But the truth of the matter is, this political, partisan divide that we have in our country is not helping us any at all. In fact, it's driving us further and further apart. It is truly sad, the divide that we have, and we have allowed politics to become an idol. It has consumed many Christians and caused them to act very unchristlike, whether on social media or in public. My friends, it is never Christian to be unchristian, even if you believe what you're standing for is right. How about this one? Good immigrants. You know, there are certainly some immigrants who have come to this country with the intent to do us harm. No doubt about it. They have done some heinous things, but we have to concede that not all immigrants are bad 
Some are trying to escape their war-torn country and make a better life for them and for their families to try to have uh, a, a pro more prosperous future and to keep their children safe. They want a better life, and our country has been built on the backs of good immigrants. Here's another one. How about this file? Good black people. Sadly, there are those who have a file that has been filled with information that stems from ignorance or a prejudiced upbringing. Some have filled their file with the stuff that they see on the news, stuff that they read in the paper. They have been drinking the Kool-Aid. They see what's going on in our world today, and they assume that every black individual is a criminal, a drug dealer. They need some new information for their file. They need to be able to see that while the color of our skin may separate us outwardly, the blood of Christ connects us spiritually. Here's another one. Good white people. It would be easy for a black man or woman to lump all white people in the same category, given the history of slavery in our country. It would be easy for blacks to not want anything to do with whites because of how they were treated in the past. That would be easy. What's not easy sometimes is looking past a group and seeing the individual and seeing the heart. Here's another file. Good police officers. Depending on, you know, what news outlet you watch or what you hear on the radio or read in the newspaper, you see this broad brush approach that all police officers are bad. That's not the case. We have some of the finest right here in our own congregation. Despite what others would have you believe, not all police officers are corrupt. Not all of them are targeting black individuals. We've got to stop painting with a broad brush. Don't assume the worst. Be willing to expand your thinking and expand your file. I have no desire to delve into the politics of all this. But what I will say is that all these different movements and protests and groups that are making headlines, all of them fall short because not one of them is proclaiming the gospel. That is our primary mission. That is our obligation as Christians. Where there is social injustice, we must speak up. But where there is social injustice, there must be the gospel. There should be Christian men and women showing the world that sin is the cause of all of this, that it boils down to sin. And where there is sin, there should be Christians willing to love, willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. People can protest, they can riot, they can loot, they can tear down statues, they can throw rocks, they can peacefully get their message across. But at the end of the day, none of it saves souls. We've got to stop taking our cues from the news. We've got to stop buying what the world is selling. Sides are being formed, lines are being drawn, and all of it is becoming politicized and used by politicians for political gain amid the acts of terrorism, the beaten and killed citizens, the torch businesses. There, there's a deeper issue. 
And each side will get bolder and more dangerous. Each side will continue to make a response that is ungodly. And back and forth we go as our culture circles down the drain. On each side of this divide, there are people obsessed with identity politics. There are people who are morally bankrupt. There are racists. There are people who need purpose and direction. And there are also souls. These groups are made up of our neighbors. And that may not be what you want to hear, but it's true. At the end of the day, Christians must stand out from the crowd and deliver a different message promoting a different lifestyle. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan is about meeting the needs of another. It's about showing compassion. It's about reaching out to one who, who others would consider unworthy. But above all else, I believe the parable of the, new, of the Good Samaritan is about getting a new file. For the Jewish listener, there would have been no file that read Good Samaritan. There would have been hateful Samaritan, there would have been dirty Samaritan, there would have been despicable Samaritan, but there was no file that said good Samaritan, but Jesus gave them that file. Look at it again, verse 33 and following. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Go and do the same. To a world consumed with comfortability and convenience, go and do the same. To a world that is so fast-paced that we miss opportunities to reach out to those around us, go and do the same. To a world that is politically and racially divided, go and do the same. To a world that is too narrow in its definition of who their neighbor is, Jesus says, go and do the same. And to all of us this evening, Jesus is saying, go and do the same.